Paul says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And Father, we humbly pause and just ask that you would help us by the aid of your Holy Spirit to be able to be prepared, to be receptive so that we can hear what you want to say to us. We thank you that you're a living God and that, Lord, you talk to us, that you speak to us. And we ask that you would do that this morning. We believe your word is where you do that best. So we pray, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. And may we not hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking and communicating to our hearts. Bless your word. We ask and teach us by your spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, for a few years uh, in the first season when we were planting Calvary Chapel of York in Pennsylvania when we first moved there, uh, I was actually working uh, sanding and refinishing hardwood floors uh, for a company to uh, make income for the family as the church was being established and and growing and, and learned some different things, obviously, through that process. And uh, one of the things, certainly, about sanding, what I learned on occasion, we would have to try and knock down when fresh hardwood was laid down some of the really, really rough areas before we could sand it the way we were supposed to. And sometimes we actually had to sand with the machine across the grain of the wood and I certainly learned that when you sand wood of course you're supposed to properly sand it with the grain and when you sand against the grain of wood uh, it's certainly more difficult uh, it certainly becomes rough uh, and, and, and it causes a quite a bit of resistance well in the same way spiritually uh, as you and I make forward progress in the things of the Lord, as you make progress spiritually, we're always going to be rubbing against the grain of Satan. Uh, and as a result of that, there is going to be an increase in resistance. There's going to be an increase of opposition that we experience. And our passage this morning speaks to us about facing resistance particularly facing spiritual resistance because of commitment to Christ. But it not only speaks of facing resistance, it speaks of yet pressing onward and not being, in a sense, subdued or pushed back despite the resistance, but pressing forward. As Paul writes his second letter, we've been studying it to this younger yet very deeply spiritual church there in Thessalonica, he's aware that they are at this time undergoing a very difficult season in their lives personally and as a church. He's described in the letter so far how he knows that they're suffering many hardships, how they're enduring persecution for their commitment 
to Jesus. And as the result of them going deeper spiritually and being a very fruitful and productive church, that only intensified the resistance and the opposition from the devil's camp against them. So in light of that, we find Paul here saying, look at it, verse 15, therefore, brethren, he gives them a charge now, and it's a military language that he's using. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught whether by word or by epistle. So uh, like a commanding officer trying to encourage his troops in battle, Paul gives a charge now not to give up, not to back down spiritually, but instead to cling to the truth, the truth of God, which anchors us in the midst of resistance and storms of resistance. The first thing he clearly says there, verse 15, is just to stand fast. To stand fast. The idea there is is to dig your heels in, to hold your position, to hold the line without being pushed back. Again, it pictures a group of soldiers perhaps holding the line as they're taking enemy fire and they're facing a real intense resistance, though it's hard because that group of soldiers understand the greater cause, that there's something bigger than themselves that's involved here. That there's something more important than just their own comfort or their own welfare. That there's a much bigger cause and reason to hold the line and to stand fast. They dig in their heels and they hold the line. They hold the position and stay at their post, though it's hard. And though there is resistance and opposition and pressure that comes against us spiritually... And Paul understood that. Though there's strong influence many times to back off or to give up, Paul gives this exhortation here for them and for us to stand firm and to not be moved, to not be pushed back, but instead to hold your ground spiritually. And again, within the spiritual life, the New Testament, the Bible is very clear to us in many passages that in this spiritual life, there is spiritual warfare. When you accepted Jesus Christ, you, in a sense, were drafted into the Lord's army. Whether you wanted to or whether you were aware, and a lot of times we don't tell people that when we present the gospel because a lot of people may go AWOL. No way then. I don't want to be drafted. I'm going to go to Canada. Get away from it. But the reality is when you accept Jesus, you become a soldier in the Lord's army. You're you're entering into a spiritual battle and there is resistance and opposition and there is warfare. Again, Ephesians 6 describes this in such great depth and detail. It's a passage that deals with the reality and the existence of spiritual warfare. It says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this present evil age. Again, the idea being is that as we experience things, it's not sometimes just having a bad day. Sometimes it's not. Boy, it just seems like this is a really hard season. Well, yeah, it is. But there's an unseen realm in the spirit that many times is behind that, that's causing those difficulties, those calamities, those problems. It's spiritual warfare. And in Ephesians 6, we're instructed not only to endure it, but even taught how to overcome it. That we're to put on the armor of God 
so that we're able to, in a sense, keep ourselves protected from dangerous wounds, from mortal wounds that would destroy us and wipe us out. But in that passage, Ephesians 6, there's also repeated practical charge, much like in our text here in verse 15, that is very crucial. Four times in Ephesians 6, our passage on spiritual warfare, four times there's a repeated practical charge and that is this it just says the lord's soldier is to stand to stand four times it just says stand hold your ground ephesians 6 13 says therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day not be pushed back and having done all when you've done everything you know how to it just says stand just stand just hold the line. You don't have to advance, but just at least hold the line. Hold the line and stand firm. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. And you know, perhaps this morning for some of you, that's an exhortation that you need to hear from the Holy Spirit if you're enduring enemy resistance because of your commitment to Christ. Or because of you trying to do what is right or righteous in your family or in a situation or walk with Jesus or desiring to serve him somehow. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And if you've done everything else, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. You at least stand. You don't budge. You don't back off on following Jesus. You hold the line. You realize there's something of greater importance and the least that I can do is at least keep believing and just stand and just hold the line. And let me just say something. Lots of people in this world, let's be very frank, are willing to go to war for a lot of crazy things. I'm not talking about military conflict. I mean, just look around our world. People are willing to go to war and fight hard in life for so many reasons for their causes or their ideas. And people will enter into war and fight hard and, and go to battle for so many things. Goodness gracious, we're a follower of Jesus. We have the highest reason in the world to hold the line spiritually at times and to fight for what is right and what is righteous and what is best for our family's spiritual welfare. So this morning, can I encourage you, as Paul is here, stand firm in your commitment to Jesus. I especially want to say if you're a man and you're a husband and you're a dad, times 10, you stand firm. You stand firm. Have a spiritual backbone and stand firm for your wife, for your family, for the cause of Christ and for the body of Christ. It's our calling. It's our calling. And, and Paul here says to them, look, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But he says, stand fast stand firm he says verse 15 and hold the traditions he says next which you were taught whether by word or by epistle now when paul uses the word traditions there it's a term that speaks of that which is handed down from one person to another so that something may be continued to be followed but be careful he's not referring to here or implying man-made religious traditions uh, that's not what he's referring to. Uh, unfortunately, these kind of religious traditions, maybe many of us have experienced some of them in our upbringing or our past or whatever, these kind of things develop among religious groups, 
religious traditions, spiritual traditions. And the sad thing is religious traditions get created and observed, but a lot of times religious spiritual traditions can become kind of detrimental spiritually. Quite honestly, they can even sometimes become a distraction spiritually from what really God intends for a person's life. And people can get all encumbered in religious traditions. That was even the case in Jesus' day, if you remember, with the religious leaders among the Jews. And Jesus strongly rejected that as great error. Jesus said this in Mark 7, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do, all the rituals and practices that they went through. And he said, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you can keep your tradition. Jesus said, making the word of God of no effect that through your tradition, which you've handed down. In other words, Jesus was saying your very religious tradition in your system of worship means more to you than the word of God. And you'll disobey what the Bible directly says just to cling and uphold your tradition. And what was esteemed more in that religious circle was the religious traditions of men rather than the simple clarity of what the Word of God says. Do we not see that today in our world? And so because of that, please don't misunderstand. Paul's not saying cling to those kind of traditions because that would contradict Jesus' words. That's not what he's referring to. So what then is Paul talking about when he says, hold the traditions that you were taught, telling them to hold tightly and not let go of the traditions which they were taught? Well, like always, the Bible answers it for us. Look at the rest of verse 15. The traditions you were taught, whether by word or our epistle or our letter, the idea is. One translation says here, keep a strong grip on everything we taught you, both in person and by letter. Again, Keep in mind, in the days of the early church, when the New Testament was being put together, Christian doctrine was initially taught verbally via the words of Jesus, via the words of the apostles who shared things, and it was then transmitted Christian doctrine by word of mouth. Ultimately then, thankfully for us this morning, it also was then recorded in written form through the letters which we now have in the New Testament. But when Paul says here, hold the traditions which you were taught by word and by letter, Paul's referring to very simply holding tightly to the word of God, holding on to the scriptures, the things that were once spoken and then ultimately recorded by Jesus and the apostles, because see, that is what makes someone what would make them spiritually stable. That's what would help them be rooted spiritually if they kept a tight grip on the word of God because holding to God's word is what helps a person to stand fast in the things of God. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and that's what he says is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So again, what's going to make a person thoroughly equipped for everything? The scripture, the word of God. And as believers, we have to remain committed to holding the teachings and the truths of scripture. And realizing that in the hardest hours, that is what helps us to stand fast. 
let's be very honest again this is what has helped believers and this is what has helped the church to stand fast for generations this you know the the church in the in the days before us in many ways poor people they i mean all they had in many ways was the holy bible and the holy spirit how did they do it I mean, they didn't have the access to all the different trappings of what we have in Christianity today that are so critical so that we can somehow be so savvy and, and somehow, you know, so hipster spiritually, and they made it. And people got saved and lives got changed because they held on to the Word of God, because they realized that this is what helps people hold fast spiritually. This is what's inspired of the Spirit. This is what changes people's lives. And this is what is our best defense against Satan, against sin, and against the selfishness that lies inside of every one of us that causes us to be self-destructive. Look, nothing's changed. And contrary to how smart sometimes we think we are, nothing's improved. This is still the sword of the Spirit. This is still the best thing to defend against the enemy, to cut sin out of our lives. It's our greatest self-defense. And this morning I would say this, do you want to stand firm spiritually? Then don't let go of your Bible. Don't let go of the importance and the priority of the Word of God and its place in your life. To the extent that this book holds the proper place in your life, you'll stand firm spiritually. And to the extent that you begin to set it aside and cling to and grab hold of all kinds of other things, you'll find that you'll begin to slip spiritually. So he says, hold fast the word of God. He then goes on to begin to, after charging them, to now intercede for them, verse 16 and 17. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who's loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and good work. So he charges them to stand and now he begins to intercede for them in prayer. And Paul was someone who knew what it was like himself, above all others probably, to face opposition, to experience resistance both in the spiritual life and in the Lord's work. And he very quickly came to learn, not just as a Christian, but as a missionary and pastor and church planner doing the work of God, he began really quick to learn that the primary thing that helps most is calling upon the Lord in prayer and seeking God and asking God for his help and strength and comfort in such times, knowing they needed help there in Thessalonica and that he was not able to be there with them. He wishes for, he calls upon here, uh, in a sense, the cooperative ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father to be able to do for them what they needed. Paul understood, look, I'm not able to be there. But our Lord Jesus, and he says, and God the Father, who are never limited, they're never restricted by locality. They never have an inability to be able to help. They're never hindered. They can always come to your aid. So Paul now prays here in verse 16 and 17 that they would supply the supernatural assistance that these believers needed in their hour of need. And notice there in verse 16, as we look at it, how speaking of Jesus and the Father as one, 
Paul speaks of them as one there, Jesus and the Father, understanding a trinity. And he reminds these believers of the great things that the Lord our God has already supplied. He mentions a few. The first thing he mentions there, he says, he is the one who has, notice, for all time, past tense, loved us. Loved us. He reminds them of what he's already done for us. He is the one for all time who has loved us, again, even before we were ever following him. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment satisfactory for our sins. And again, not only has God loved us, but God continues to love us, even in the hardest hours of our lives in the most difficult things. And what's even better is nothing you experience, nothing the Thessalonians were enduring, nothing that we go through can ever, ever alter that love that God has for us. Paul says that to the Romans in chapter 8. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is a wonderful thing to be persuaded of, to be able to live your life. And listen, this world may rob things from you. People may steal things from you. People may separate you from your job. People may separate you from your home. Your spouse may separate themselves from you. Your parents may separate from you. You, you, People may abandon you. You may experience separation in so many ways and you can be separated from anything, but you will never, ever, ever be separated from the love that God has for you. God will love you through all of that and he'll continue to love you with the same faithfulness and knowing that steadfast, enduring love of God, that's what gives us confidence to pray and to seek him. And that's why Paul says, man, it's this God who loved us that inspires us to pray because Paul says, knowing that kind of love, it assures us God wants to help people. And so why not call upon him to help? He speaks of as well in our verses here how God has also given to us everlasting comfort and good hope, it says, by his grace. So those who trusted in Jesus, we've been saved by the undeserved grace of God. And as a result of that now, he has given to us comfort in our difficult times in this life, knowing that we possess everlasting life and that one day we have the comfort of knowing and the good hope that we are going to be released from this life and all its struggles and be able to be in heaven with the Lord and to experience his best. And see, realizing the Lord our God has already given so much to us, it's what inspires us to believe that he's able to help us right now as well. That's what Paul meant when we're talking to the Romans in chapter 8 when he said, he who did not spare his own son, but instead delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, Paul understood, look, if God's already done so much for us, he gave us his best up front. He gave Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us. So he says, if God didn't hold back then, if he didn't spare and say, I'm going to do some for him, but I mean, these people don't deserve that much. They're pretty wretched. 
He says, if God didn't spare or hold back his grace, his help, his love, his best for us on the front side, then he said, that's what inspires, how, he, then certainly he'll give us the lesser things. If God would give us Jesus and let Jesus do what he did, then certainly he's saying God and his love. Do you think God doesn't care about the very minuscule things in your life in comparison to giving Jesus in the way that he did? And that's our great hope and encouragement. So notice what Paul asks in the 17th verse, particularly for their struggles and suffering. He says, may our God, first of all, verse 17, comfort your hearts. May our God comfort your hearts, that God would provide comfort because when we endure forms of resistance and opposition and persecution, whether it's for your relationship with Jesus, whether you face resistance because you're seeking to serve Jesus somehow and there's coming opposition against you because of that, or maybe just you're trying to remain committed to Christ and because of that you're dealing with some difficulty, the result is always the same. It leads typically to kind of a wounded heart and a discouraged heart when you experience those things. And I'll tell you, I am so thankful that though people cannot fix and heal a wounded, discouraged, bleeding heart, that God always has access to minister to people's hearts. And God can comfort people's hearts. And that's why Paul prays for this here. Look, God's blessed us with incredible medical technology. We can open people up and we can physically fix aspects of people's hearts, right? And we can do surgeries and bypasses and all these amazing things. But you find me somebody who's got a wounded heart. It's not bleeding physically. But it is gushing blood from pain and trauma and things that's happened or the discouragement or the heartbreaks or letdowns. And their heart is so wounded. You find me the best surgeon on this planet, they can do nothing to help that person. But God can. Because God can comfort people's hearts. And God, by His Spirit at work inside of people who are hurting, can help people and heal and relieve the pain and the suffering in people's hearts. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulation. Man, how wise it is, ladies and gentlemen, to call upon the Lord in prayer like Paul here when we see those who are in need of that kind of comfort. Do you know somebody that's got a wounded heart? Do you know somebody that's got a discouraged heart? They're grieving, they're in pain. Maybe they've lost someone. Maybe they're just dealing with something very hard and their heart is hurting. Listen, Lord, comfort their heart. Lord, you alone can comfort their heart, minister to them, and God can answer that kind of prayer. He also prays as well in verse 17 that God would provide stability in their spiritual labors. He says, we also pray that the Lord would establish you, verse 17, look at it there, in every good word and work. So the idea there of establish is to shore something up, to strengthen it so it's more stable. In other words, to ensure that it has maximum potential and success and effectiveness. One translation renders this, may he give you strength in every good thing that you do and you say. Paul there is asking that the Lord will in a sense anoint and prosper every good work of service that they do, that the Lord would bless and, and in a sense shore up and, and use in a powerful way every good word that they spoke in Jesus' name to share the gospel or to help someone. 
He's basically asking that the Lord would allow their ministry efforts to take root and to blossom spiritually. And Paul knows how at times when we're seeking to do a good work or maybe seeking to use our words to be helpful for the kingdom of God or to help someone, how the enemy many times comes against that and he wants to try and uproot that. And whether it's through discouragement or resistance or whatever it may be, Paul's praying, look, I pray that you wouldn't be uprooted, but instead that the Lord would sink your roots deep and you'd be established and strengthened and that the Lord would not only get you to take root, but he'd make you abundantly fruitful and prosper your labors. And, you know, I think that's a great reminder if we see people doing good works for the Lord, we see ministries, missionaries that we see that we say, Lord, establish them. Lord, help them to take root and to really blossom spiritually in every good word and every good work. Paul goes on in the third chapter saying, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it has with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. So notice Paul also here humbly and wisely requests prayer, what? For himself. He prays for them, verse 16, 17, and now he requests prayer for himself and his own ministry team. He says, brethren, there, verse one, pray for us. Again, Paul understood that there's great value and critical importance to prayer, not just for the spiritual life in general, certainly that's true, but as well for the work of the Lord in ministry. In fact, if you read the New Testament letters, you see Paul asking and requesting for prayer for himself and for his ministry team as they served <coughs> repeatedly, <coughs> excuse me, in all of his letters. Romans 15, verse 30, Paul says this. Listen to his words. He says, Now I beg you, brethren, strive together in prayers for me. Paul's begging. He's saying, I'm begging you, please. I'm not, again, Paul wouldn't fit with a lot of people today. He says, I'm not begging you. Sow your seed donation. Paul said, I'm begging you. Keep your money. Pray for us. Strive together in prayer and pray for us. Because Paul knew the potential of prayer is so much far reaching. 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 6, Philippians 1, Colossians 4, just other locations where, again, Paul's always saying, pray for us. Pray for us. He's always asking for prayer because he understood it's by seeking God to become personally and directly and powerfully involved in the Christian walk and in the Christian ministry is what makes all the difference in the world. That's what makes all the difference. In our spiritual lives, we all need daily grace and help and preservation and protection from the Lord. And the same way, in any form of Christian service or ministry that we endeavor to do, we desperately need that preparatory work of God's Spirit to pave the way in front of us. And not only that, then for His presence and power to be what accomplishes supernaturally the good fruit of spiritual ministry that can't happen through the efforts of the flesh. The Bible tells us in Zechariah that God declares it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You know, can I say this morning as your pastor on behalf of myself and, and my family, can I steal Paul's words? Pray for us, for our church leadership here and those who serve in various forms of, of ministry. Pray for us. 
for any outreach that happens in connection to this church or those in this church that do forms of outreach. Pray for us. Because your partnership to seek to pray for us is what keeps people who serve usable vessels, number one. And number two, I believe very firmly in my heart that is the hinge that makes all the difference in opening up in many ways spiritual doors of opportunity. It opens up spiritual doors in people's hearts to be able to be receptive and responsive the way God intends. And I think as well, it is the one thing that opens the windows of heaven for God's spirit and blessing to be poured out on what God wants to be doing. So look what Paul specifically asks. It's a great model if we want to engage in prayer. Paul asks specifically in verse 1 and 2 here, number one, that the word of the Lord, he says, pray that the word of the Lord would run swiftly. The image there is an athletic image of an athlete able to run without hindrances. He pictures the word of God having legs and able to move forward and make progress. And he's saying, pray that nothing would hinder it, that nothing would get in the way from the word of God being able to move forward. From it being able to make the progress, that nothing would slow its progress down, that all obstacles spiritually, circumstantially, in any way that would hinder the maximum impact and the maximum effectiveness of the word of the Lord, whether from a pulpit, whether from the Sunday schools as people teach our children, whether in sharing the gospel, whether in outreaches, that those things would be removed, that nothing would stand in the way or hold back the gospel from going out, but that it would run swiftly, that it would spread more rapidly all over the area, reaching more lives, reaching more people, that the word of the Lord, the, the word of God as it's taught to be helpful to people would spread more rapidly, Paul's saying that there would be new avenues opened up to get out the word of God, that there would be excitement that would increase more rapidly, a greater desire, a greater increase, that there would be more interest in the word of God, that it would spread more rapidly. Paul prayed that the word of the Lord, secondly, in our text here, would also not just be able to run swiftly, but that it would also be glorified. The idea there is to pray God's word would be respected in people's attitudes towards it that it would be highly esteemed and honored in people's response to it, given the proper respect and the exalted place it deserves, and that the word of the Lord would be held in high esteem, that it would be held up and yielded to and submitted to as a believer hears that it would be so highly esteemed in the life of Christians that when they hear the word of the Lord because it is such an exalted thing in their life, they would say, I must submit to what the Bible says doesn't matter what I feel or think or what others are telling me. The word of the Lord is glorified. He honors his word above his name, the Bible says. And so therefore, I must glorify what the word of the Lord says. And that when unsaved people hear the word of the Lord and the gospel message, they would be so touched and powerfully impacted by the spirit that they would submit to the truth of the gospel message and that they would enthrone it and embrace it. Paul thirdly prays as well here in verse 2 that they would also pray for him that him and his team would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. He says, for not all have faith. Now I find this interesting. Paul subtly but yet very honestly points out that he was facing similar opposition 
and resistance there in Corinth, where Paul was at this time. Reality is everywhere all around the globe, there are always those who do not have faith. And sadly, some of those people will even strongly resist those who want to have faith or who want to share the faith with other people. Paul mentions in verse 2 here, he was dealing with unreasonable and wicked men. The idea is the wicked one was using vessels to be wicked men and cause problems. And clearly it was spiritual warfare because Paul points out here in verse 2 that their attacks and opposition against him, Paul says, it's, it's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. That's almost how you can tell it's the devil at work. Oftentimes those without faith in Jesus can become very wicked and very unreasonable. They can become very cruel and do evil things and people act unreasonably to hurt the work of the Lord, to hinder the gospel, to hold back Christians, to hassle you as a follower of Jesus. And it's so unreasonable. And when you study the book of Acts, you see this in Paul's life. So Paul's praying that the Lord, he says, pray that the Lord would deliver us from these people and their efforts to oppose us. Now, let me just say this before we move on to verse three. Perhaps in some ways, Paul indicates his own struggles, as he mentions here in verse two, that he was dealing with unreasonable and wicked men against him. I wonder if maybe Paul indicates his own struggles in life and ministry and asks for prayer for himself, maybe as well in a secondary way to help keep these struggling Thessalonians from slipping into that woe is me attitude. Look, if we were to be very honest with ourselves, oftentimes when we struggle and deal with hardships, and I'm not diminishing struggles in any of our lives, but I think oftentimes when we deal with hardships and struggles in our own lives, we tend to start to become a little introspective. And we begin to hyper-focus on the gravity of our struggles and our difficulties, and there's something about realizing others are struggling as well. There's something about finding out that other people are going through similar sufferings or their own set of hardships. And not just that, but then doing something about it to maybe help them or to pray for them in their hardship. As Paul says, pray for us. We're going through a hard time too. There's something about knowing others are struggling and then maybe even doing things to help those who are struggling that quite honestly can actually become a very therapeutic thing. It can become something that becomes very liberating and very, very wonderful to help us. And you know, if you're struggling this morning, let me encourage you, don't isolate and wallow in your own self-pity. You know, I know a few individuals in this church right now that are going through very hard times. And I'll tell you something, quite honestly, quite frankly, they're about the biggest servants in this church right now. They're the ones that are pouring themselves out to help and serve others. And there's a part of it that I can't help but to think, boy, you know what? This is great therapy for them because they're keeping themselves preoccupied, pouring out their lives to other people who are hurting. And there's something very wonderful and rewarding about that. And I just wonder if perhaps Paul, to help them, he says, look, pray for us. We're, we're going through hard times as well. Now, having just mentioned that men, in verse 2, can be cruel and wicked and unreasonable and lack faith, in a purposeful contrast, look at verse 3, Paul then purposely says, but the Lord is faithful. But the Lord is faithful. He calls them to remember the faithfulness of the Lord in contrast to people who often are, let's be very honest, unreliable, 
to human beings which are changing. They're disloyal. People can be unfaithful, he says, but the Lord Jesus is always faithful. He's always dependable. He's always reliable. He's unchanging. And he, unlike people, will always be there and will always show up. And he mentions two ways the Lord shows and demonstrates his faithfulness to us. First of all, he says, verse 3, the Lord is faithful who will establish you. And then he says, secondly, and guard you from the evil one. The idea then again is to establish you. The idea is to strengthen you to support you. One of the ways the Lord shows himself to be faithful in our lives, is it not true, when we're weak or weary, when we're unable maybe to stand or keep going, Jesus is so faithful to come and to renew our strength. You know, Paul says, though the outward man is perishing, he says the inward man is being renewed day by day. And boy, is it not so true that sometimes in our weakest hours, our hardest moments, how the Lord comes and he's so faithful to renew our strength to lift our head again, to give us fresh power and ability inside, giving us strength to carry on. Philippians 4.13, that's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul said, hard times, good times. I've seen them both. I've been in times of plenty and I've been in times of real severe need and want. I've been at times when I've been really blessed and I've been at times when I've been so burdened I despaired of life. But Paul said to the Corinthians, those times even when we despaired of life, that was so that God might teach us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in God who raises the dead. And see how wonderful the Lord's faithful is in our lives that at times when we feel broken and ready to fall apart, He comes and He shores us up. And he strengthens us and he establishes us and he renews our strength. But not only that, Paul says, the Lord is also faithful, verse 3, because he will guard you from the evil one. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now that's not encouraging Christianity, but that's biblical Christianity. The Bible tells us very clearly that the devil is like a roaring lion looking to just devour our lives. And let's, let's be real. On our own, we're no match for the devil. I think it's absolute lunacy. I hear people barking and yelling and, and telling the devil things as if somehow they're going to command the devil what to do. Look, uh, you, you can ask Jesus to rebuke the devil. When the devil knocks on my door, I don't open the door and say, get away. I say, Jesus, can you get that, please? I'm no match for the devil. He's a satanic being. The authority of Jesus, who I stand behind, is the strength that helped me to overcome, and he'll empower me to do that. And he's the one who guards me from the evil one. The enemy launches his attacks against us to tempt us to sin or do what's wrong or destroy our lives or ruin us. And look, we're no match, but here's the one thing Paul says, but the Lord's faithful. He'll guard you from the evil one. He'll come in at that moment and he won't abandon you. He won't leave you vulnerable. He won't leave you sitting on the battlefield and say, hey, it's getting hot. I'm getting out of here. He'll stand by your side. He'll guard you from the evil one. Jesus will never let you down in your moments of greatest needs and nothing intimidates Jesus. Are you really glad for that? You know, it's like the devil is this schoolyard bully in his efforts as the evil one an evil fallen you know spiritual being and he wants to bully us as the evil one but we have a really tough big brother 
and a rather strong being brother who is intimidated by nothing and no one. And he'll guard us and he'll come and protect us and watch over us to defend and to protect and to rescue us in moments of temptation or when the enemy comes and attacks our lives. I mean, people think the Secret Service is impressive. That's like having Pee Wee Herman guard you. I mean, come on, goodness gracious. We have Jesus guarding us from the evil one. Paul goes on, verse 4, and says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things that we command you. So he declares he was confident that through the Lord's ongoing work in their lives that they would continue, he says, verse 4, to keep doing the right things spiritually that they would continue. And he's talking about mainly describing here their obedience again to the word of God that was given to them through the commands and instructions of the apostles. But he's also, I think, referring there probably to the specific requests that he's made to them to stand firm as well as to pray and to intercede, trusting they would continue to be obedient in all those things. But I want you to notice here the reason for Paul's confidence that they would remain obedient is because... The Lord is faithful. Look again at verse 4 there. Look what Paul says. I'm confident, don't miss this phrase, in the Lord that you will do and continue to do the things we command you. Paul's confidence was in the Lord that they would continue to be an obedient people. Certainly we have a spiritual responsibility to be obedient to the authority of God's word. We do have that responsibility. But... Paul also knew our ability to remain and be obedient does not come from us alone. And this is really great news because by nature, if you haven't discovered yet, we're rebels at heart. You give me a command, I want to disobey it just because you gave it to me. Maybe you're not like me. By nature, our humanity is to be rebel. What's the first word your child learns and you don't have to teach him? No. Right. Why do you think that is? Because it's just one syllable? No. Different S word. Because they're sinful. Adorable, but sinful. They're little wretches. That's what they are. I've raised three of them. I understand this concept. They're all redeemed now, so I can say this in love. But by nature, we don't want to be obedient. We naturally want to be disobedient to the commands of the Lord to the commands of his spirit in our lives, to the instructions of God's word. But thankfully, the Lord is working in our lives. He's working in our lives on the inside. He's enthroned on the throne of our heart and he helps us to be obedient. That's why Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that you'll be obedient. It's what Paul spoke about when he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you He'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul then says in that same letter, the second chapter, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. See, it's this beautiful reality. How liberating that we don't have to fully rely. Listen, we don't have to fully rely on each other to do what's right. That we don't have to fully rely on a person to always obey and do the right thing. Rather, we can be confident in the Lord to work in another believer's life. We can be confident that God within them as a Christian will help them obey and do what's right even when they're not right there holding their hand. Paul says, I'm confident you'll keep doing the right thing. That's so liberating. 
As a parent, that should be the most liberating thing for you in raising children once you teach your children what it means to have a relationship with Christ. If the Holy Spirit's on the inside, look, the glory is this. You're not going to be with them 24-7. But you can be confident in the Lord that he'll help them obey and do the right thing. And trust the faithfulness of Jesus in that. Paul then says, verse 5, Now may our Lord, again, he enters back into prayer, direct our hearts, your heart, excuse me, into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So he prays here, again, the Lord would let them experience two things. Direct your heart there is a term which means to clear away obstacles so that you have clear passage. The first thing he says is, May the Lord clear away any obstacles that would hinder you from coming fully into, look at it there, the love of God. He says, I pray that God would take away anything that would keep you from experiencing the full awareness of the love of God. That they would have anything in their life that holds them back from being able to know that, to believe that, to experience that realization of the incredible love of God taken out of their lives. And I think that's important because sometimes there are things in people's hearts that put up barriers to receiving God's love. Tragically, you have a bad father. And that's a shame because then people struggle with accepting the concept of a good God, a good father. And that can be a barrier in their life. And there are barriers and things that come into people's lives that keep them from receiving God's love. Paul's praying that that would be removed. He says, I pray that anything that would stand in the way of your heart coming into the awareness of the love of God, I pray that barrier would be taken out of your heart. That you would come to know God's love in a greater way, to be secure in his love and to accept it and so that you can then, again, express that love to other people. And he says, I also pray the Lord would direct your heart into lastly there, verse 5, the patience of Christ, that he would pull away anything that would keep you from coming into that patience of Christ. That word patience there is a term that means to bear up under anything and keep going. What Paul's talking there is not being patient while you wait for your food at dinner. He's talking about there the endurance and perseverance that Jesus exercised in suffering and how he didn't give up in hard times. But instead, Jesus pressed forward. Why? In a desire to obey the will of God and to help others. So Paul says, I pray you might come to know the love of God in, an, in the most incredible way. And that you also would be able, as Jesus lives within you, he says, to have your heart experience the persevering spirit of Christ as you go through challenging times. That you would have the spirit of Jesus within your heart helping you, even in the hardest hours of your life, wanting to be faithful and therefore saying, like Jesus, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Let's stand together.